In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. Today's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, includes one of the most well-known parables in all of Holy Scripture, that of the Good Samaritan. I mean, we have laws on the book. I believe they're real laws. They just weren't in the finale of uh, Seinfeld, if you guys can think back that far. Good, I got to laugh. I'm trying to keep my jokes current. There we go. Where if you fail to help someone in need, that's a crime. You see someone's in need and you don't help them, it's a crime called a Good Samaritan law. And so this text is familiar. And though this text is familiar, we're going to spend much of the sermon this morning meditating upon it in an unfamiliar, albeit ancient, way. But before we get into the various layers of meaning of this parable, I want to give you some background and uh, preliminary information. First, I think it's important for us to understand, at least generally, who the Samaritans were and are. Apparently, there are still 200, about 200 Samaritans that, will, that still worship at Mount Gerizim. We'll get to that uh, in a second. Uh, but the Samaritans, uh, they descended uh, from the northern tribes in Israel. They claim specifically Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, and then the tribe of Levi. And what happened, if you, remember, if you can remember last summer at all, we went through the Davidic monarchy. And we saw that it didn't last that long, that after Solomon, Israel split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom, Judah had some good kings. If you read, the the northern kingdom never had a good king. It's like, we're going to try to see if we can top the last one with with wickedness. Uh, And in 722 uh, BC, uh, the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. Now, not all were carried off through the desert with hooks in their noses, which are my Bible teacher growing up my Christian school would also, he would always warn us of wrongdoing and saying uh, that if we kept it up, we were going to end up like the the Israelites uh, being led through the desert uh, with hooks in our noses. I grew up in Virginia, so there wasn't much of a desert, but I I guess he was speaking metaphorically. And so some of the, the Israelites stayed And they intermarried with the pagan peoples, which was the no-no. And so they're descendants of those. Uh, The Samaritans, as we'll see in a second, they, they only accepted the law of Moses. They rejected the prophets. They rejected anything that was remotely Davidic, which is, you know, the Psalms, the prophets, the rule of David, how that connects to Christ, that's a big deal. Uh, so they were, uh, this is pejorative, kind of vulgar, but from the Jewish perspective, in first century Israel, they were half-breeds and they were heretics. Half-breeds and her- heretics. So the Jews and the Samaritans, and we can see this in the Bible, they do not like each other. I mean, the woman at the well, John chapter 4, who was Samaritan, She's surprised Jesus is even talking to her because she's not only a woman, but a Samaritan. And like, I can't believe a Jewish man's engaging me like this in the middle of the day, speaking with me. 
Uh, the Samaritans, uh, they worshipped, uh, again, they, they rejected uh, Jerusalem, Mount Zion as the place of worship. Mount Zion, of, again, very important to Christians, to Jews in the first century. I mean, Jerusalem, the temple specifically, the temple mount, was heaven on earth. It's the proper place of worship. Uh, the Samaritans worshipped on Mount uh, Gerizim, and, and, which is significant in the Old Testament. Um, there's a, a set of mountains, and there's a cool scene in Deuteronomy uh, where there's two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and in between uh, the valley of Shechem. I know you just read this, right? Shechem's in between. <laughs> he's, he's getting ready for, Jonathan's getting ready for his seminary class on the Old Testament. Uh, valley of Shechem, 99% sure, but you can feel free to fact check me. Not on Wikipedia. Get a better source than that. Um, and there's this cool scene where they're reciting the blessings and the cursings of the law antiphonally. So Moses is on Gerizim, and they're reciting the blessings. It's like, so why do we chant things responsibly? Because it's biblical. That's why we do it. We didn't make this stuff up. I didn't just think, I'm not just a, you know, a Luddite antiquarian. Oh, this is something cool people did a long time ago. No, they're, they're chanting it responsibly, back and forth. And the blessings were, were recited from Gerizim, and the curses from Ebal. And so it becomes this significant place. And so that's a little bit of background on the Samaritans. But it's important to know because we'll see this parable as the provocative parable that it is when we understand the relationships between the Jews and the Samaritans, particularly uh, the religious intelligenista, if you will, uh, in Israel in the first century and what they would have thought of the Samaritans. One more thing before we move forward. I know it's like a more luxury than normal uh, this morning, or, may, or maybe not. Uh, you, maybe it's, it's par for the course. Uh, in your mind. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say about Gerizim. So when Jesus, when the woman at the well says to Jesus, our fathers worship on this mountain, she's talking about Gerizim. That's, that's what she's referring to. And Jesus doesn't say, well, it's okay that you don't. She, Jesus actually corrects her because he says, you guys are worshiping what you don't know. So Jesus isn't just like this sort of syncretist, we are the world, believe whatever you want to believe, sort of uh, Messiah, and it doesn't matter, all dogs go to heaven kind of thing. So don't take it, don't take it uh, that way. I'm getting laughs this morning. This is rare if you're visiting. Usually it's just dead silence, and, but, you know, as long as I think it's funny, then I enjoy the joke. But before we get into the parable, I want to review a little bit about levels of biblical interpretation, because this is important, and we've gone through this before. There's, there's the literal level, which is important. It's essential. That's just what is the, the prima facie, that is the first face meaning of this text. Just like what is it saying just on a nuts and bolts level. There's also the moral interpretation of the text. And, and that's just not like morals in the sense of right and wrong. We can also think of that aesthetically. The moral interpretation is asking the question, is answering the question, rather, how should we then live? How should we then live? There's also 
the allegorical interpretation, which is focused on Christ. What is this revealing about Christ? What is this saying about the gospel? This high level of meaning. Then there's also what's known as the, the anagogical interpretation. Anagogy is a word that talks about, means leaning upward. What does it have to do with our own divine ascent and the end for, the end for which we were made? You know, relationship with God, the vision of God has to do with es- eschatology, not just like sort of like Tim LaHaye, apocalyptic, you know, um, <laughs> zombie sort of things that we think about when we, he- we hear the word apocalyptic. The word apocalypse actually means unveiling. So, it, so those are the four main levels of scripture, all important, and they don't compete with one another. Uh, perhaps some of you that, uh, if you've, you've had some graduate level work or you're aware of some of the ways that scripture has been used, maybe that word an allegorical interpretation makes you nervous. I'm not using it in the way that some use it where, for example, you have a 20th century German theologian, Rudolf Bultmann, where his idea of an allegorical interpretation of scripture would be something like, well, Jesus walks on water. Well, he didn't really walk on water, but Jesus just, uh, he so inspired his disciples that it made them feel like he had walked on water. That's not what I'm talking about. These, I'm talking about the highest meaning of scripture that reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. The, so Jesus walking on water, stay with me, don't eyes glaze over. Jesus walking on water, it means something. It reveals something about God. It's not just a naked show of power. Look what cool thing I can do. It's connected to the Exodus and to Jonah and to, and to creation and all of these things. So that's what it means to read scripture in that way. So back to the, back to the parable of the Good Samaritan. The ancient church, this is why this is important, the church fathers, while certainly they, they don't ignore, they don't preclude the literal and moral interpretations of scripture in general, or the parable of the Good Samaritan in particular, but they focus on its allegorical meaning, that this parable is about Christ. The parable of the Good Samaritan reveals the person and work of Jesus. And in understanding this, this is the neat thing, our moral understanding of the text, how should we then live? Okay, what does it mean? To love our neighbors as ourselves. And the moral understanding of the text, it will be deepened. And moreover, we will have the impetus to love our neighbors as ourselves, even if our neighbors are enemies. Because when we come to better know and experience God, who in and through his Son has been a good neighbor to us, taking us out of the ditch, out of the miry clay, setting our feet upon the rock so that we will be able to fulfill the law. When we understand what God has done for us, then we're able to love God with all that we are and in all that we do and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And as an aside, if I can throw this in there. I'm throwing all kinds of stuff in there, so just keep it going. We're going to stream of consciousness this morning. 
When we understand God's love in Jesus Christ, put on display in the gospel, his incarnation, death, and resurrection, we're able to, we can learn to love God with all that we are, learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in many cases, we need to learn to love ourselves. That commandment presupposes a healthy self-love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for some of us, because we're self-degradating, because of our, because we, we can hate ourselves, to love our neighbor as ourself would actually be a sort of malevolence. Of course, there's such a thing as disordered self-love. We call that narcissism. <laughs> there's no room for anybody else in your heart. You filled it up. But there is a proper and a necessary self-love that you will have when you recognize that there is no higher anthropology that exists, view of mankind, than that of Christianity. God made you in his image. He made you for the express purpose of being brought into the very midst of his own Trinitarian life. And he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, when we were wounded with many sins and transgressions, mortally wounded, dead in our trespasses and sins, gave his son Jesus Christ, who by his wounds we were healed. He bound us up and put us on the narrow road to, that leads to life. He made you Again, for the express purpose of being united with God. And this sounds blasphemous, and I wouldn't say it if it wasn't in the Bible. He made human beings to be by grace, by participation, what the Son is by nature. Oh, how great! And wonderful is the love of the Father that we should be called the sons of God. So without further ado, verse, verse 30 of Luke 10, we're going to get into this text. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. The certain man at one level of interpretation, represents Adam, Israel, mankind. Adam fell from grace. He left the Mount of Eden, Jerusalem, to the symbol of peace with God, of communion with God, and he descended into Jericho. Jericho, a city that symbolizes the world. St. Ambrose, and there's that descent. From Jerusalem to Jericho is a descent of about 3,200 feet. So in Scripture, you know, 
Most of the time when we say, I'm going up somewhere, we, we say we're traveling north. In Scripture, he went down to Jerusalem. He's actually traveling south, but he's going up. Bible hack right there. St. Ambrose of Milan. Jericho is an image of this world. Adam, cast out from paradise, that heavenly Jerusalem, descended to it by the mistake of his transgression. He was greatly changed from that Adam who enjoyed eternal blessedness. When he turned aside to worldly sins, Adam fell among thieves, among whom he would not have fallen if he had not strayed from the heavenly command and made himself vulnerable to them. Who are those thieves, if not the angels of night and darkness? He, that is Adam, received a mortal wound by which the whole human race would have fallen if that Samaritan, capital S, had not tended his serious injuries. Before going further on this, uh, I had mentioned it is a provocative uh, thing that telling this story to a Jewish lawyer that the hero of the story is the Samaritan. It would be sort of like, and when I say sort of, not really like at all, but maybe it'll help you understand a little bit. It would be like a New Yorker being the hero in a Southern folktale. It would upset the apple cart, or vice versa. These Northerners are trying to uh, solve a tough intellectual problem and a southern lawyer from Georgia comes in and saves the day. You know, it just, what in the world? And what is the answer to the lawyer's question? He said, who is my neighbor? Maybe it was sort of elitist, like, well, who's my peer? And the, the implicit answer, of course, and this is the, the base level interpretation, it's good. Everyone. That's Jesus' implicit answer. But it's not precisely that, and it's not just that, because Jesus' answer and his question with the, answering a question with the question at the end of the gospel doesn't precisely match up, does it? Because if it was just that, don't you think the parable would have been you have a devout Jew, and then it's the Samaritan who's hurt? But he upends it and he makes the Samaritan the hero, which is a gentle rebuke. I think similar to the rebuke that happens later in Luke in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember that story? He's telling it against Israel, against the religious leaders. And what he's saying is the younger son, the sinners, the tax collectors, they're coming home running and you're outside the party. You should be in there. You've missed it. And Jesus is saying to some extent, I, I would suggest here somewhat the same thing. It's the, the figure is the Samaritan who's actually fulfilling the royal law because he's loving his neighbor as himself.
So when we look at this parable Christologically, that it's speaking about Christ also, it's not an either or, but that this is illuminating the person and work of Christ. This thing just opens up. There's no detail in all of Holy Scripture that's extraneous. That's a throwaway journalistic detail. Why is there a descent in this parable? Why does it use the language of clothing? Why does it use the language of wounds? Why does he bandage up his wounds with cloth? Why does he pour oil and wine? It all means something. Every jot and tittle. All scriptures given by inspiration of God. And so we should expect it to have an inexhaustible depth of meaning for the church. So brothers and sisters, we are the injured man. We, we were mortally wounded on the side of the road. And the Good Samaritan, again, is a type of Christ. For Christ, not by chance, as the priest and the Levite, but intentionally journeyed from heaven to earth. He came down. He made the descent. And those of you who may be visiting with us, that's why did he come out and get so close to me while he read the gospel? Well, that's what I would call an incarnational moment. Because Jesus left heaven, the altar, the sanctuary, and he came to earth and he proclaimed the good news. He was the good news. Christ journeyed from heaven to earth. And this is how you know this is speaking of Jesus. When the text says, the Samaritan looked on him with pity. Or in other translations, with compassion. How many times do we see in the text that God's moved with compassion? That Jesus looked on the multitudes, he's filled with compassion. Jesus did what the priests and Levite, what the law and the prophets bore witness to, but could not accomplish in and of themselves. He saved us. By his wounds, he healed our wound, our wounds. The fathers also see as, as the, uh, the man... From Jerusalem, presumably, almost certainly the Jewish man in the parable, Israel, Adam, is bound up with healing bandages, an image of putting on Christ, an image of the baptismal garments. The oil that is poured upon us is the Holy Spirit, whom we receive. The wine is the precious blood of Christ, which imparts to us the forgiveness of sins and all other benefits of his passion. The good Samaritan set the injured Israelite on his own animal, the text says, which is a symbol of the incarnation, that he took up human flesh, and I would add an image of sacrifice 
that he took up human flesh, that Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became human and then offered his flesh for the life of the world. For the life of the world. Christ, the Good Samaritan, heals us. He heals our bodies by uniting us to his own, which is the church, which is represented in patristic exegesis by the inn. St. Augustine writes this, Robbers left you half dead on the road, but you have been found lying there by the passing and kindly Samaritan. Wine and oil have been poured on you, you have received the sacrament of the only begotten Son. You have been lifted onto his mule. You have believed that Christ became flesh. You have been brought to the end. And you are being cured in the church. And who is my neighbor? Christ is saying, I've come. And God's grace and his love goes not to just one particular group of people, but to all men, to all women. That's the grace of God that we received. And we, we recognize how God in Christ by the Spirit has loved us and treated us. That will transform how we love and treat Others. So who is your neighbor? Christ is. When you recognize that, that he has showed us love and compassion, then you can answer the question again, who is your neighbor? All for whom Christ has died.